Chapter 10 Navigating the town was like running a finger along the lines of a checkerboard. I turned off Route 117, a couple of grid lines north of the Desert Inn. Left two blocks, right three blocks, right again one block, which brought me around the back of the motel. A plain building planted like its neighbors in a wide rocky lot. The sun was still in the process of disappearing, and the barren desert settlement looked almost romantic in the glow. Flat-roofed homes were set in generous but dusty lots, sprinkled with big cactus plants. The occasional evergreen tree, rusting automobile shells, and engine parts. A boat was improbably hoisted onto blocks in the yard across the street. There weren't any people outside. I parked the Ford with two wheels up on a dusty curb, picked up the bag with new clothes from the passenger seat. Next to the bag was my homemade cue ball sap. One side of the silver duct-taped ball had a red stain. I put it in the glove compartment. As an afterthought, I threw the red baseball hat in there with the sap. The back of the Desert Inn was unpainted cinder block wall, lined with a gravel-filled drainage ditch. The roof featured a row of air-conditioning units, one for each room. I came around the side and leaned casually against the edge of the half-rectangle of motel rooms. It was a decent observation post, screened by a spiky desert plant the size of a small tree. A red pickup truck had parked close to the motel office. It had not been there before, which on its own was not suspicious. The old Dodge was still there, poking out on the other side of the pickup truck. The Dodge probably belonged to the kid in the office. Other than that, there was nothing going on. Opposite the motel, Route 117 made a horizontal line. Beyond that, the gas station seemed far away. Once in a while, a car passed on the road. Other than that, no parked vehicles, no watchers in trees. I rolled off the building, stepped around the cactus, and onto the footpath protected by a long awning. Got to room 12 and knocked twice. No answer. I opened the door with the key and looked inside. The bed was empty. Sheets ruffled. I closed the door and stepped in. Elena spoke from behind me. You took a long time. I turned around. She was standing in the corner with the Glock in her hand. I threw the Walmart bag on the bed, pulled the driver's license cards I'd taken from the two in the Cherokee out of my pocket, and showed them to Elena. Know these guys? She said, and you took the key. Then she grabbed the identity cards out of my hand and sat on the bed. What are those? A couple of guys who were following me. Elena swept a lock of hair from her forehead. She studied the license cards, looked up at me. How did you get their driver's licenses? I took them, without asking or saying please. If that's what you mean, she grinned. It was like the sun coming out, I said. Do you recognize them? No, but that doesn't mean anything. What doesn't mean anything? That I don't know who they are. She drew one long leg under her, 
put the gun on the night table. Look, you don't understand. And you don't need to get involved. This is my problem. I said, They were following me, which makes it my problem now. Tough guy, huh? I said nothing. She laughed sharply and said my name, Keeler, which in her accent sounded the same as if she was saying killer. Lena handed the license cards back to me. I'm afraid they will always be men identical to these cabrons. The sicarios will not stop coming until I am dead. They were following you? Yes. So then we were seen in your car. Looks that way. That border patrol vehicle, maybe. I said, or your phone. She touched the bulge in her front pocket. You think? I said nothing. Elena rubbed her eyes and sighed. Keeler. I've been running for a long time. Crossing over wasn't even Plan B. It was more like Plan D. What do you do when Plan D fails? I said, revise the plan. Easy for you to say. She looked at the plastic bag on the bed. Hope they fit. Probably won't. She said, that was nice of you. What do they have against you? Elena picked up the plastic bag and set it to the side. She said, I'm a reporter. I decided to write about what everyone knew, but was afraid to say. All of those mayors and cops and officials and important assholes, all lying and caught up in the narco state. I just started to write about it simply, with no thought other than to tell the truth. It felt great, Keeler. Really great. Elena shifted forward on the bed, hung her legs down. She looked at me with wide eyes. It was the stupidest thing I could have imagined doing. I have no idea what got onto me. I was surprised that at first nothing happened. I wrote articles. They got published in the paper. People read them. People commented online. Positive and supportive comments. As if everything was normal. You know what I mean? I nodded. Nothing happened for two months. And then they cut the throats of my editor and his entire family and strung their bodies from the overpass outside of town with perverted jokes written on cardboard signs hung around their necks. The next day, I got a postcard in the mail. It said, We are going to rape you until you die. I said, Have a shower. Get changed. We should get something to eat. Then we can talk about Plan D. Elena said, Optimism. I like it. She slid out of the bed and went around the side, picked up the plastic bag with the clothes, and went into the bathroom. I lay down on the bed and looked at the ceiling. I could help Elena get away from the border area. That wouldn't be a problem. But what would she do then? It's not easy living as an illegal, especially if she had been a journalist. It's one thing hooking into the network of illegals working the jobs that run the American economy. Construction, lawn work, restaurants, care work, house cleaning. But that is not the same as getting a real job on the books. And there is always the danger of a knock on the door from ICE. Then deportation back to Mexico 
and the Sicarios. I thought about Canada. Maybe she could claim asylum if she could make a plausible case that her life was in danger. I had read that Canada had a visa-free entry to Mexicans, at least they used to. If we could get Elena over the border, she could make a claim there. The sound of the shower started up in the bathroom. But moving to Canada would not solve the problem of the Sicarios finding her. If they were determined, not easy to see what would help. I walked to the big window and drew the curtain back. The last glowing edge from the top of the sun was kissing the horizon. From the big window I could make out the back of the red pickup truck, parked near the office. Beyond it, the front grille of the old Dodge. Otherwise, the lot was empty. A light flashed on the other side of Route 117, the flash of two headlights. My eyes snapped to the spot, and I made out the shadow of a pickup truck. It had not been there before. A darkened shape silhouette against the lights of the gas station, parked facing the motel, other side of the main road. The high beams flashed once, again. Flashing high beams is a way of signaling. In the best-case scenario, it was an innocent thing. Maybe a couple of lovers were in the truck. They had accidentally triggered the high beams. Or maybe some kid was learning Morse code and flashing signals to his friend a mile away. Or maybe the Sicarios really were that determined. Maybe the guys in the Jeep Cherokee had identified the Ford at the Desert Inn before I left to go shopping then had followed me all the way to Walmart. In that case, taking them out had not been smart, because it had prompted them to call in reinforcements. Now, instead of one bunch of guys, we could be facing two or three. Hope for the best, plan for the worst. The worst was bad. The second team coming in as backup, four guys minimum, approaching with weapons, fanning out to cover exit options. We had to get out of the room, but the front door was not an attractive option. It was a real humdinger.